Second Peter chapter number three. I'd like to welcome the guests that are here with us today and our members. We're so glad that you're here. And also those who are joining us by way of television and radio around the world. We're so glad that you're tuned in. And uh, we pray that God would bless you for being with us today. A pastor was visiting an old man. And the pastor said to the old man, at your age, you should be thinking about the hereafter. The old man replied, oh, I do all the time, no matter where I am. In the living room, upstairs, in the basement, I ask myself, what, I, what am I hereafter? <laughs> You've got to be over 70 to do that, I guess. Sometimes I wonder, what am I hereafter? What are you here after? This is more than just church. More than just the day after the big fight. We need to be conscientious of what we're here after. You know... A lot of folk believe in heaven, but never talk about it. A lot of believe, folk believe in heaven, but they never think much about it. C.S. Lewis said this, It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that we have become so ineffective in this world. If you thought more about the next world, we'd probably be more effective in this world. But it seems like it's easy to get swamped with things here on earth. As we get squeezed by our jobs, finances get tight, relationships go sour, when those things begin to happen, it is easy to meditate on the glories of heaven. In the Bible, Second Peter chapter number 3, it is Peter's second coming chapter. Have you thought this week one time about the second coming of Christ? You think about it. He is coming. Heaven ought to be important to us, we who are going. And it ought to be important enough to us to try to persuade others to go with us. If it's what the Bible says it is, it must be an awful wonderful place. No football. <laughs> no baseball. Of course, we don't have much of that in the Metroplex anyhow. Let me read for you before you get mad at me, all right? Verse 1, chapter number 3, the book of Second Peter. Peter's second coming chapter. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Pure minds is benefited by being stirred. Impure minds does not need to be stirred. Because to stir the impurity is to produce more evil 
wickedness and sin. So Peter is writing to a certain group of people and out of those of a pure mind. And does it not need to be stirred up on a regular basis? We have a very good forgetter, do we not? And so Peter is writing to stir up their pure minds by way of remembrance. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Words. Look at that little word, words, words, words. All the words. Every word. The Bible is inspired every word. Not precept, not idea, not paragraph, but all scripture is inspired of God. Words. We need to be mindful, more mindful, of the words spoken by the prophets. And Peter says, we, the apostles. That's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Every word. We need to be mindful of those. I hope that's why you're today, so that I might bring back to mind some of the words that we need to remember. Verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of. That by the word of God, the heavens of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved under fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Boy, it seemed like a long time ago God promised Jesus was coming back. Yeah, two days. To God... It was as if he said it yesterday. God is not limited to time. All the time is right now with God. To God, there is no past. To God, there is no present. To God, there is no future. That's the reason he told Moses, tell him, I am sent you. Not I was. Not I will be, not I shall be, but I am that I am. Aren't you glad of that? So all of these scoffers running about saying, well, everything's going to just keep on going like it has been all this time. Yeah, two days. And the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now let me give you a little science. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens, plural, shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. 
There is global warming. And that's a fact, Jack. Seeing then, in the light of all that I've read, seeing then, because God is true, God has spoken, and what God has said will come to pass. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, here's what I'd like to ask you. What manner of persons ought ye to be? In the light of the second coming of Jesus Christ, in the light of a place called heaven, and in the light of all of this is not going to last forever. In the light of the temporary state of your life and in the light of eternity what kind of person ought we to be I think that's a pretty good question do you think it's possible that we have taken our eye off the major and begin to emphasize the minor. Is it possible that the children of God who's experienced the cross and experienced blood, experienced redemption, experienced salvation, experienced forgiveness of sin, and is getting older every day and more wrinkles are showing up, evident that you're not going to last forever? Is it possible we've taken our eyes off of heaven and got them on the nasty now and now. We worry more about today than we do eternity. Isn't it amazing God's got eternity all straightened out and all taken care of so we don't have to worry about that? But he's not big enough to help us in the nasty now and now. So we'll just worry about that. And let it consume our time. Why did Peter say, what kind of person are you? Why did Peter say to we who are saved, uh, what kind of person ought you to be? I think maybe it's because uh, Peter had his eye on the second coming of Christ. I don't know about you, but when I was just a lad, and it's been a while since I was a lad. It's been a while since I was a laddie. But there was a mindset when I was a child. Everybody believed that Jesus was coming again. Everybody in our neck of the woods believed in the end of time. The end of time automatically assumes that there will be a beginning to eternity. If a tree were to fall in the woods and make a tremendous noise. Some of the old timers would say, I wonder if this is the second coming of Christ. If the weather turned bad and it was unusual, some of the old timers so believed in the word of God and so believed in the God of the word and believed that God said what he meant, meant what he said, everything, every time something happened uh, out of the unusual, is this the second coming of Christ? Could it be that Peter saw the necessity of reminding us that this thing is not going to go on forever? And if you're more interested in hugging trees, aborting baby puppies, saving the fish, making sure they don't put asphalt over your grass so that the grass can breathe. If you're so wrapped up in this world, you need to realize 
It ain't yours. And God has a plan for this world. And we ought to start planning for the one to come. So I think maybe that's why Peter has written this book. Notice in verse number 3, he reminds us and he informs us of some folks that is about us. The Bible says in verse 3, and he says, Knowing this, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. Scoffers, translated as mockers, from a root word meaning to play like a child, to sport or to jest, walking after their own lust. Scoffers, oh, they're teaching our kids down at the schoolhouse. Uh, they, they've kicked God out, and now uh, they're scoffing our kids. I notice now where they want your pre-K child at three years old. They want that child. They're going to pay for that child's free education. Three years old, pre-K, Fort Worth said they'll pay for it free. They want your children as early as they can get them. And whoever said it would be free, they get so much money from the federal government for every eyeball they have in that classroom. And you ask me, does our three-year-old kids need mom and daddy, or do they need a secular, socialistic school system to teach them that they belong to the government? You said, but preacher, it's free. It's free. What if it costs you your kid? Scoffers. Yeah, scoffers. They want to see they have no faith. They see what the world offers and they want what the world offers. Their minds dwell on earthly things. They scoff and play at the things of God. And I'm saying to you today, it has Blend it in and come into the church house to where we no longer believe Jesus is coming again. We do not live like he's coming again, but God said he's coming again. If he comes the first time, it won't be a big deal for him to come the second. If you believe in Easter, you ought to believe in the second coming. Can you say amen? If you believe in Christmas, you ought to believe he's going to come the second time. You say, well, preacher, look how things are going along. Look at the advancement of humanity. Look how much stuff. We've got social gospel now. We've got social services now. We've got social media now. We're so social, we've become selfish. And now all we see, and we scoff at the things of the Word of God. Notice, if you would please, again, he mentions verse 5. Notice he says something else in verse number 5. He speaks of willful ignorance. How many of you got one of these in your hand? Would you hold them up, please? You have these in your hand? How many books is in it? Don't answer. What's it about? What's the theme? Where did we hear about sin? Uh, where did we hear that there's a place called heaven? How much you know about this book? You have no excuse. You've got one in your hand. If you don't know it, don't blame me. Willful. Willfully, ignorant. In the last days, Peter warns us about scoffers. And we cannot answer the scoffers because we're willfully ignorant. Willfully ignorant. You say, preacher, I don't know what to ask. Just ask anything, it'll be an improvement. People call me all the time and ask me, 
about certain scriptures in this book. And I said, I'm just thrilled to death that they want to know. Notice, if you would, please, I want to show you something in verse number 5. Look at this, if you would, please. In verse number 5, the Bible said, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. It speaks of willful ignorance, a deliberate mindset against God, lust had clouded their reason and they had made their own plans and they chose not to believe God's word. Notice in verse number five, they're ignorant concerning creation. Ignorant concerning creation. Do you think perchance that your kids has ever heard anything detrimental in opposite of divine creation. Do you think maybe a parent in this church house has willfully exposed their kids to evolution? To sow a seed is to have that seed produce root. To neglect the root and the seed is to produce fruit. Why are there so many scoffers in America? Because we kicked the Bible out, and now we have baboons teaching our classes. You know, I was at, all the time I was in school, I never dated an amoeba. Always waited till they got fully developed. Willfully, willfully allowing heresy. Scoffers teaching our kids. Willfully ignorant of creation. Notice, if you would please, in verse 6, willfully ignorant of the flood. Verse 6, it says, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. That seems kind of hard to believe with a natural mind. That one day... God completely destroyed as many as 3.5 billion people with flood. A loving God, a merciful God, a long-suffering God, that somehow or another so flooded this world. That's kind of hard to believe. So it's easy for a scoffer to ask you to prove it. Willfully ignorant of the flood. You can't hardly visit a civilization that does not have some kind of record of a massive worldwide flood. And almost every language has a man's name involved in a worldwide flood, Noah, in some sense of the word. But yet, there are scoffers in the world that are willfully ignorant of the flood, willfully ignorant concerning God's intention. Verse 7, the Bible says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men, willfully ignorant of God's intervention, willfully ignorant of God's judgment, willfully ignorant of earth's destiny, chapter verse number 10. On and on, there goes the ozone. There goes the rainforest. Why? It's going to be on fire. 
It's going to be so hot that the elements are not going to disintegrate. They are going to melt. So hot, this world is going to be hot. Most of us believes Washington when it talks about global warming. Especially those folk in Boston this year who had several feet of snow. Well, I don't know what we're going to do. All of our lakes are getting low. Five inches of rain didn't hurt that much last week. Here we're going to get some more tonight. Do you know God ain't making no more rain? We got all the rain we're going to get. You know something else? The scientists ain't making no more rain either. Who do you think's in control of this? Obama? If he is, I'm ready to leave. Come on, say amen. Who really is control? Well, don't listen to the scoffers. Don't listen to those who are willfully ignorant. Bless the Lord. The Bible has the answer. What kind of person ought we to be if the world's going to disintegrate, if Jesus is going to come, if judgment is a surety, if Jesus Christ is still on the throne? How should we live? I think that's a good question. Going over kind of like a pregnant povalter, but that's all right. Notice Peter speaks of God's calendar. God has a calendar. The Bible says, in verse number 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. I know it's been a long time since the flood, Peter says. I know it's been a long time since God stepped out on the edge of nothing and spoke the word and everything came into existence. I know that. I know it's been a long time since Adam looked at Eve and said, Wow, man. Now, I know it's been a long time since Eve got so jealous of her good-looking husband, Adam, and she went up to him and said, Honey, do you really love me? Adam said, Who else? I know it's been a long time. I know it's been thousands of years, and it just keeps on. It just seemed like it just seemed like it's not going to. Hey, wait a minute! Wait, 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 wait! One day to God is as a thousand years. God is not shook up. God is not confused about what took place in Adam's day, or Noah's day, or our day. It just seems like yesterday with God. I'm 66 now. One of my dear friends, a lady, reminded me this morning how old I was. Thank you, ma'am. You ladies that sits on the back row, it's always encouraging this young whippersnapper of a preacher. She said, I was 76. I was hoping it was 75. Not that it'd make any difference. It just sounds better. But 75 to God... It just a little while ago. God has a calendar. And when God gets ready, he'll pull the string. Jesus will come back. And all of God's people will take off to heaven like Snyder's pup. 
and all those folks who are not will be left here to watch the elements melt and see the King of Kings and Lord of Lords reach down and open the hatch to hell and watch the meanest, vilest, demonic, ungodly devils fly out of that bottomless pit and go throughout this world tormenting the Christ rejectors. And then when it's all done, God will consummate it all and we'll all enter into eternity. In the light, of the second coming of Christ and the light of the last day events, what kind of person ought ye to be? That's the question that Peter asked here. They were ignorant of the calendar. It speaks of God's purpose, if you would please, in verse 9. Why has it been so long since God promised the second coming. Why has God delayed? Here's the reason. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering to usward. Why didn't God fix this up before Calvary? Why did God have to send his own son to a place called Calvary? Why did Jesus, the sinless son of God, hang on a cross for six long hours in torment, embarrassment, being tormented by ungodly men and women? Why? Because God was not willing that you should perish. Because God loved you so much. He said, I'll hold back the end time. I'll hold it back, giving you time to repent. The plan of God is God so loved this world. Can you say amen? He gave his only begotten son. Peter seems to be assured that Christ was coming. And if all we see is temporary... And will be dissolved. How wise is it to put our 100% attention on something that's not going to last? If it's tangible and you can touch it, you're going to run off and leave it. Or somebody will steal it. Or it will rot or it will rust. And we give our time and attention to that and neglect the Lord Jesus who's coming again. I don't know why we're that way, but are we not that way? What if we could, what if we could get people so excited about the second coming of Christ as Hollywood did the fight last evening. Do you know that those two fighters made close to $200 million apiece? And that there was so much activity on the cable systems that it overloaded the cable systems and they had to postpone the fight for just a little while until they uploaded all the viewers at $100 a crack around the world. What if we could muster up enough excitement that the sky's going to split and Jesus is going to step out on the ledge of nothing and stand there and cry, come up here, and we all take off to heaven, Lydicus split. And if you don't get saved, you can listen to me as I go up through there, I told you so. 
You said you wouldn't. Yeah, I will. I study, I pray, I preach until I almost have a heart attack each Sunday morning and you sit there like a knot on a log on your way to hell all because you like your car more than you like Jesus. Man, if brains is dynamite, you wouldn't have enough to blow your nose. You say, preacher, you don't get visitors back that way. No, you don't. So I wasn't talking to the visitors. <laughs> Many of us, I'm closing. God knows that I'm probably lying. Many of us spend our entire life seeking the secular. We do. We esteem ourselves successful around the junk that we've managed to accumulate. Or the kids that we raise that don't appreciate us. I told my kids, the best thing your broke daddy can do for you is to teach you how to work, how to manage, and how to be saved. What about their education? Now, they appreciate it because they paid for it. Well, I'm going to pay for mine. I bet you get a lot of good out of that. Most of us spend our entire life shoving God to the backside while we seek the secular, the temporary, that which rots, rusts, and wrinkles. I'm having a hard time taking these two hair I got on top of my head and covering everything up. One day it works better this way, next day it works better this way. One day it works better this way, one day it don't even work. And I'm to worry about that. Heaven is real. Jesus is real. God is real. Hell is real. And I'm going to spend my entire life. Now I know we need this secular. But it is not to be our God. If we were as faithful to church as we were to work, this church wouldn't even hold our members. I'm just saying, lives are built around self and the world, no place for God. Paul said, seek those things, set your affection on things that are above. And then I come to the question and I close. What manner of persons ought ye to be? When I read that, I jotted down this point. The end is near. Verse 10. The end is near. But the day of the Lord will come as what? Thief in the night. The day of the Lord is speaking about the end time events. Which the next thing on the calendar of God is the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about in a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump of God shall sound and the dead shall rise 
incorruptible. Got to watch that thing. A thing bit me one time. I've had whooping cough ever since. And the Lord himself shall descend. With the shout of the voice of an archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds with the Lord, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And when we go out, all hell comes in. For seven long years on this earth, it will be tribulation as never before and shall never be again. A time of Jacob's trouble. A time when the wrath of God is poured out on this earth and upon Israel. A time of purging a time that is so hard to comprehend, a time when the moon will be black, of blood, like blood, the sun will turn black, and the stars will fall from heaven, hitting the earth, knocking it off its axis, and the islands and the sea will slide about like checkers on a checkerboard. But thank God we're not here. We've been raptured. Battle of Armageddon, Millennial reign of Christ, and then eternity. That's the day of the Lord. It all is initiated by the rapture. Everything's taken place that needs to take place for all this to happen. So in the light of that, what manner of man should I be? I think we ought to be an expectant people. Behold, the manner of love the Father bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not appear what we shall be. But we know that when we shall see him, we shall be made like him. And every man that hath his hope in himself, watch this now, purifieth himself even as he is pure. If we are living in the expectant, immediate return of Jesus Christ, we'll live different. We'll act different. We'll be different. We ought to live a life of expectancy. I believe he's coming. I used to be so foolish to say, I'm going to buy a car and get long payments so the devil can pay it off during the tribulation period. That didn't work. I paid off 25 cars waiting on the devil to come back to have to pay one off. That wasn't too smart. <laughs> Amen. In the light of all this, we ought to be a people of expectancy. We ought to be an exemplary people. Given an example. Notice verse 11. Verse 11 says, Seeing then that these things shall be dissolved, what, shall, what matter of man shall we be? in all holy conversation and godliness. I want my kids to be able to identify with godliness, not godlessness. I want my kids to see what integrity looks like walking around in shoe leather. I want my kids to see what honesty is by watching dad do the bills and paying who he owes and not beating them out of anything and trying to do it on time and do it with a good character. I'm to leave a life of example for you. Churches are now mimicking our financial situation. They now want me to come by and Tell them how we have our stewardship set up. Of 210 churches, the man who came in to check our books for our, our audit, out of 210 churches, he said this 
is the best and the most solid and well-run financial church I have ever been in. Can I come back after the issue and just talk with you folks? I want people on my staff to realize honesty, godliness, holiness, integrity, and character still count. We're to live a life of example. We're to live a life of expectancy. We are to live a life of evangelism. Verse 15 says that God is long-suffering. He's long-suffering that people who are not saved might get saved. Yesterday we met. We all went out. A handful of tracks and a pocket full of tracks knocking on doors telling people, look, Jesus saves. I may not get to do that next week. Jesus may come. But I got to do it this week. And I get to do it today. We ought to, since all of this is going to happen, we ought to live a life of expectancy, of example, of evangelism. I was looking for something just to close this out this morning. I found this. It may not be applicable, but it, uh, it's the only thing I could find. And I didn't have a poem. I'm not a good poem writer, not a good poem reader. On the morning of September 11, Gina Becker switched on the television to check the weather report, only to hear that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. Gina's husband, Al, worked on the 105th floor of the World Trade Center. He had survived the World Trade Center bombing in 1993 and even helped folks during the bombing. And Gina knew that if a plane had hit the Trade Center that her husband, Al, would still be ministering to the people in the building. And she said, but I never thought for a minute that Al would never come home. A week later, like so many others who were in that building, Al's body was found in the rubble. Al's wife, Gina, and his son, Christopher, devastated, and I can imagine his world. Then reports begin to trickle in from friends and acquaintances. Some people on the 105th floor had made a last call or sent a final email to loved ones saying that a man was leading 50 people in prayer. A few referred to Al by name. Al's family learned that Al had indeed been ministering to people during the attack. And when Al realized that there was no way out of the building, he began to share the gospel with the 50 co-workers in his department. This news came as no surprise because Al and his wife had prayed for years for the 50 co-workers in the building. According to Gina, Al hated his job and couldn't stand the environment. It was a world out of touch with Christian values, but he wouldn't quit. Al was convinced that God wanted him in that department to witness to those 50 folk who were still in darkness and would not believe and Al's God. But September 11, a sudden thug, a crash, was heard throughout the building. 
and everybody's attitude changed. In the light of death, in the light of eternity, and in the light of no escape, and in the light of a burning hell, and in the light of a glorious heaven, God called on Al for the answer. And Al led all 50 of them in the sinner's prayer. They looked to Al in their chaos. in their desperation, in their not able to do anything about the situation, they looked to Al and Al delivered. In the light of God's eternal plan, busting into the middle of our situation. Don't you think we ought to be a people of expectancy? Of evangelism? Your building could be next. You could answer the call to the next tornado in Joshua. You might be the victim of the next 100-mile straight wind. Or the doctor might say, it's malignant. In the light of your temporariness, don't you think we might ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we've seen and which we've heard? Which road do you think maybe would be more profitable to you. 